Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Zachary Lowell, and joining me today is Toby Lincoln to discuss his new book, An Urban History of China published this year, 2021, by Cambridge University Press. Dr. Lincoln is Associate Professor of Chinese Urban History at University of Leicester. In addition to his articles and book chapters, he is also the author of Urbanizing China in War and Peace, The Case of Wuxi County, published in 2015. As many listeners will know, China became predominantly urban for the first time in its history in 2011, and the country's urban population has only continued to grow over the past decade. Amid this rapid urbanization, anyone who wants to understand modern China needs at least some understanding of what's happening in Chinese cities. The book we're going to be discussing today is an accessible introduction to the history of cities in China from their earliest beginnings up until the present day. It's a great resource for students, educators, and anyone new to the subject. So with that, uh, Toby, thank you for joining us today. Okay, thanks, Zachary. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So it's traditional on the podcast to ask our guests to start off by introducing themselves. So can you say a bit about your academic background and specifically how you became interested in China and Chinese history? Okay, thanks a lot. Yes. So as you said, I'm based here at the University of Leicester and I'm actually in the Center for Urban History um, at the University of Leicester, where I've been for about for about a decade. So I've become an urban historian, I think, very much uh, because um, I'm based in, in the centre. I'm not sure I, I was I was one or I really understood properly what an urban historian was before I became to Leicester, but I, but I certainly am, am now and really glad to be able to write about the urban history of China. Uh, but I first went to China in 1999 uh, to teach English, um, like, like many other people, um, and I spent spent a year on uh, in in China and, and then another year um, in Taiwan and it's in Taiwan where I I went to Taidar and started studying Chinese um, and then on my return to the UK I did a, a master's in Chinese studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London 
Um, and then um, I was lucky enough to get to get some funding and go to Oxford to do to do my DPhil. And, and after a short stint in in the US, um, I I then ended up at Leicester, and I've been here now for 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 ten years. Um, and so I guess my interest in in China and Chinese history really came from going going to the country. I, I'd always been interested in in history, um, studied it at at, at undergraduate, but we didn't. Um, have the opportunity to do any modules on on China. Um, it wasn't quite so popular um, in my undergraduate days as as it is now. Um, and so it was really by by going to China um, and, and and learning Chinese and, and and having such a great time and, and and meeting such fantastic people that I decided that uh, I wanted to try to make Chinese history my my career. And uh, was fortunate enough um, uh, to be able to do so. Okay, great. And uh, when did the um, the urban history part come into the picture for you? And when did you decide to put it together with your interest in in China? Well, I guess my my first book was was about the city of Wuxi, which is about a hundred miles or so um, west of of Shanghai, and that that was a book about urban rural relations. So it was a book about urbanization. So it, it there, there was a, a, a it was certainly about a city. But as I say, it wasn't until I came to Leicester, I, I think, that I really, I, I really realized that there was a whole sub-discipline um, of, of, of urban history that, that, that I could engage with. I, I read a reasonable amount um, of Chinese urban history um, at, at Oxford. There were some fantastic books um, that have come out in kind of the 1990s and, and the 2000s about, about cities in, in China. So I read those. But it was only when I when I came to Leicester that I realised that that here was here was a subdiscipline that that I could that that I could kind of make make my own to 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 a certain extent, and uh, and I'm really pleased to have to have to have been able to do that over the past ten years. But of course, still learning plenty, <laughs> still plenty to learn about about urban history and about Chinese history in general. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible how uh, subfields and subdisciplines uh, continue to pop up, and um, it's uh, it's also never too late to learn something new. That's right. Yeah. So, okay, as you uh, alluded to just a moment ago, this is your your second book, and uh, I'm really curious to know how you got involved in the project we're discussing today. Um, for most academics, that first book is is really um, an extension of the PhD dissertation. But once you've kind of processed your prime material, so to speak, uh, where do you go from there? And uh, what was it like making this uh, next step in in your case? Ah, uh, yeah, that's the the difficult second album, as as one of my friends uh, likes to call it. You know, when the band's made the big first album, it's gone platinum, and and what what do you do? So yeah, it was uh, th- th- this this the, the this book isn't the big research project that I that I had planned. That 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 is actually a, a history of how Chinese cities were reconstructed after World War Two, and it took me a long time to get to that that second project. Um, originally, um, after I finished the first book, I wanted to write a history of urban planning in 20th century China. And I put a couple of grant applications together and, uh, and they didn't get funded. And as I was writing those grant applications, I realized, well, hang on, nobody's really talked about how Chinese cities were reconstructed after huge amounts of devastation during during World War II. And, and so that has become the, the big second research project, which is 
I, I'm working on and I'm going to be working on for, for quite some time. The reason that I wrote An Urban History of China is because Lucy Reimer, who is my editor at um, CUP, approached me as I was finishing the first book. Um, and she, she talked about, about the series, the, the New Approaches um, to Asian Studies series, um, which this which this book has been published in. And she, and she said, you know, a history of cities, Chinese cities sounds like it would be a really good thing to have in the series. And I was kind of like, okay, that, that, that sounds great. I'll, I'll finish my first book and then and then we can speak some more. And so we met up again a few years later at one of the Association for Asian Studies conferences. Um, and she asked me to put um, a book proposal together. And uh, unfortunately, um, that book proposal was something that, uh, that CUP liked. And, and, and so I then got the opportunity to, to write the book. So this just kind of came out of, of conversations with, with editors. And I think it's quite important to, to note as well that, that when I was thinking about writing this book, and this is a book that is, a, you know, it's, it's an introduction to, to, to a theme. It's, it has primary sources in it, but it's not predominantly kind of primary source driven. Um, like my first book was, I, I, I went to speak to my colleagues in, in, in Leicester, my senior colleagues here, uh, and asked them within the framework of a, of a British academic career, is this the right book to write at this career stage? You know, kind of early uh, transition from early to mid career, because often you write these kind of, you know, kind of interpretive overviews, textbooks, slash textbooks kind of kind of books you know often you write them towards the end of your career i think so my colleagues at leicester were, were incredibly helpful um and they they encouraged me you know uh, uh, to go for it um and uh, and i'm really pleased to, to 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 have had the opportunity um uh, uh, to do some great research and read read about all sorts of cities and uh, that, that i wouldn't have had the opportunity to read about otherwise um and to write the book yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, something always comes into your lap. You know, when the when when one door closes, another opens, and it sounds like this was the this was the case. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So um, yeah, what was so once you actually uh, set out to write the book, what was it like to approach such a sweeping history? You know, something that covers really thousands of years. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced? Uh, writing this kind of introductory text, which could be accessible to, to a non-specialist or even to students? So I, I think the major challenge was that I had to learn about um, quite, quite a lot about pre-modern Chinese, Chinese urban history. Um, I, I already knew a, a fair amount, but I realized I certainly didn't, didn't know enough. And, um, and so I have to give a shout out to the National Central Library in, in, in Taipei, um, where I, I wrote much of this this research proposal. I, I had a fellowship at the Center for Chinese Studies there, and they have a wonderful um, uh, uh, selection of, of of books. So so I was able to kind of draw on them while I was while I was writing um, the research proposal. And you know, it, it was in discussions with Cambridge that that I realized that that I had to write about the history of Chinese cities from, from the beginning. Originally, I was kind of, well, I'll just write about late imperial China and, and modern China. That's what I'm most comfortable with. And 
and you know Lucy kind of said hey we'd like something that goes back a little bit further if that's okay and I was like oh, okay all right well uh, so I started to you know think about the Ming a little bit the Ming dynasty a bit more and then I realized you can't really write about the Ming dynasty if you haven't written about the Song dynasty and then I was really well then you have to write about the Tang dynasty because otherwise the Song dynasty doesn't make much sense and then I was like okay I'll just go back right to the beginning and just start from the beginning um so, so that was the the the, the thought process that, that I went through, um, and that's why the book turned out as as it did. Um, and the, the the as I was thinking about the research proposal, I was thinking about how am I going to how am I going to write this? So I decided to divide each chapter into three three parts. Um, and so, uh, so the first part talks about the urban system. The second part talks about urban form and governance, and the third part talks about kind of urban culture and daily life. And what what that does is it, I hope anyway, it makes it easier for readers to 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 access um, what what I'm trying to say to kind of deal with with this long long durée of, of of urban history. But it also made it much easier to write because basically each chapter was three 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 thousand word essays. And so as I started to read about the histories, the historical debates of, of cities in the Han Dynasty or, 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 the, or the Tang Dynasty or whatever it was, once I'd read enough to be able to write four or 5,000 words very comfortably, I knew that I'd read enough to be able to, 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 to write that for readers. Um, because, you know, you ha- there's a trade-off between introducing historical debates and then going so far into those historical debates that, that, that you make that you make the, the book too complicated. Um, and the idea I hope is that I've introduced enough of the historical debates in each in each chapter for readers who are then interested in a particular city or a particular time period to then go off um, and, 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 and find out more for themselves. Um, so yeah it, yeah, it was a challenge, but an enjoyable challenge. Yeah, I think you really did a good job on the sources. Um, anything pre-modern um, is a bit beyond uh, my knowledge, um, especially further back in time. But I, I really enjoyed the, the diversity of sources, um, you know, for the for the imperial era and also later on as well, too. And I think you do, do a very good job of walking that tightrope between offering an intriguing introduction, but also, you know, not going too deeply into uh, various historical debates and specialty topics as well. So again, another thing to really recommend this book to a newcomer, but uh, actually that kind of also anticipates a bit of uh, my next question, which is about um, balancing uh, a chronological story with, uh, with various themes as well. So you mentioned a few themes a moment ago, but could you could you tell us a bit more about about uh, about those? Sure. So uh, so as I said, each each chapter is divided into um, three sections: um, uh, uh, the urban system, urban planning and governance, um, and then urban culture and daily life. And the idea is is very much to um, introduce what urban history is as well as to talk about the urban history of China. So urban history is, is, looks at how cities relate to each other. So that's the urban system, trade, population flows, migration, that kind of thing. 
and then it looks at what happens in cities. So how um, the uh, 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 how they're structured, the built environment, architecture, how they're governed, be that um, official governance in this case um, um, of, of, of from 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 the empire, or, or unofficial governance, um, be it um, through guilds or, 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 or charities. And then finally, we have kind of urban culture and daily life. What happens in cities? How do people um, uh, uh, kind of live in such a way that cities are both distinct from each other? Suzhou is 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 different from Beijing during the late imperial period, for example, or Shanghai is different from Beijing during the early 20th century. And also, of course, cities have a distinct identity from the countryside that, that surrounds them, the idea of, of, of an urban identity. So those are some of the themes that, um, I really wanted to, to bring out in this tripartite division of each chapter. And I think that also links urban history to other historical developments, because urban history never just stands alone. You always study cities in relation to other um, to other historical forces, be it the history of capitalism, the history of the development of the modern nation state, for example, histories of war and destruction, environmental history, etc. Um, so that's that's the, the, the one of the complications of of, 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 of urban history, I think. Mm, yeah, and again, that anticipates my next question again, which is about historiography. So over recent decades, what have historians uh, both in, in China and the West, um, <clears throat> what kinds of questions have they been asking about cities in China or how have... how have Chinese cities uh, been studied in the past and how might that be changing now? So I think that the study of um, Chinese cities has uh, has changed along with the study of China. So no longer do we think of, you know, imperial China as this kind of unchanging landscape. We see it as dynamic and, uh, and globally connect, connected um, and then morphing into something that we would understand, but morphing into into in, into into part of the modern world, beginning in the in the late 19th century um, and going up to today. And. And, and it was Max Weber who uh, really historicized Chinese cities for us, but he did so by 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 seeing them as 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 kind of political nodes um, in, in in an empire in an imperial bureaucracy which um, uh, extended outwards and downwards from the capitals to the provinces and down. Um, to the counties, and he did that because he wanted to emphasize the development of early modern capitalism in Europe by looking at um, independent municipalities um, as as kind of pushing um, uh, uh, capitalism. And that idea of of, uh, of Chinese citizens largely unchanging was taken up by Frederick Moats, really famous historian of China, who admitted that that cities were 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 really important commercial spaces, but he saw them um, as not really distinct from the surrounding countryside from a cultural perspective. And there's a, a really famous passage where he talks about um, urban architecture being completely indistinct um, from from rural architecture. Um, and then we see as scholars started to look at, particularly at the late 19th and the early 20th century, and, and that really happened in, in I suppose, that the 1990s really, that really took off and started to look at modernity in China and how China became a modern nation state. A lot of that focus was on cities. A lot of that focus was on Shanghai. Um, and then cities started to be seen as kind of the, 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 the multi 
the, the really complex entities that, that they are. Um, and we started to look at various aspects of cities um, in the late imperial and modern period. And then that then went back into into in time. So now we look at uh, different um, social groups in cities, um, uh, uh, workers, um, kind of an embryonic middle class, perhaps, if you like, in, in places like early 20th Shanghai. Um, it's been some fantastic work on, on, on gender and family. Um, and, 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 and so now I think it's fair to say that we think of Chinese cities as in the same way as we think of cities um, elsewhere around the world as, as, as complicated entities, um, meaning different things for, for the different people um, who, who, who live in them. And I also think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of this work was done by Chinese historians, um, and particularly in places like um, Sichuan University, um, the academies of, of social sciences in, in, in Tianjin and, and in Shanghai, um, uh, uh, along with a few other universities, there's been some excellent urban history of Chinese cities, and a lot of it was was in the 1980s was was really focused on 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 on, on economic history. But after the 1990s, there was kind of a cultural turn, I think, um, in a lot of Chinese in in, in, in a lot of Chinese um, history, and so we see that um, um, in as in in Chinese studies um, of cities. And there's some really fantastic work. Has come out of China in the last twenty or thirty years, um, um, looking at places like Shanghai, but also um, uh, uh, places, uh, other cities um, across the country, and done by done by often by local historians working in local universities, and certainly for anybody who who is studying a city in China. Um, one of the first places to look is to look at what local historians are doing because they often um, have fantastic access to sources and have written some great, some really great, great work. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think the the field is really developing quite quite quickly now, and there have been some really exciting studies recently. But still, it's uh, yeah incredible how much uh, Weber really overshadowed the, the the field for so long and even people who are trying to work against him still come up against his uh, shadow so to speak but um yes well he's a, he's, a, he's it's 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 a really good place to start thinking about um uh, uh historical change in china weber is a really good person to 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 to, to start with and then to think about how 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 our ideas have developed um from them and, and he for somebody who who wasn't primarily um, a scholar of China, he's he's left a, a huge mark, um, and, and, and we're indebted to him for that because yeah. he's a, he's a fantastic scholar. Well, speaking of uh, how people think about cities, um, my next question is: um, When did uh, people in China perhaps start to think about cities in terms that we might recognize today? Meaning, you know, in terms of of places with. Um, distinct urban culture or urban way of life um and is the is the idea of the urban something that existed in uh in in ancient times or or is it also um or rather a a modern intellectual uh creation within china so that's an excellent question so one of the key claims of the book is that obviously for centuries, China was was the, the largest agricultural empire in in the world. The vast majority of people lived in in the countryside, but but I I, I claim that nevertheless China had an urban civilization 
and that this was something that that, that had developed um, by by the Han Dynasty, um, and it was very much concentrated in 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 capital cities, in the imperial capitals. But nevertheless, there was really an understanding that there was um, an urban culture. Uh, that very much um, existed apart from the countryside, um, and, uh, and that cities were raised in, 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 in certain ways. They had a recognizable urban form. Um, it, going back to kind of pre-imperial days, if we, I mean, if we want to go back to kind of Neolithic times, it's it's incredibly difficult to know, of course, whether. Um, Chinese fe- felt that that a city was was distinct that where, where they lived was was urban uh, and, and I'll leave that very much to 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 archaeologists um, uh, to, to 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 debate. I, I think it's fair to say that that humans have lived in settlements um, for many thousands of years, and some of those settlements have been more important than others, whether that's for political reasons or for um, commercial reasons or for defensive reasons and so cities have have different functions and the largest cities have more than one function they're both political centers and commercial centers and cultural centers and it's 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 that kind of multifunctionality i think that gives rise to the idea that the city has its own has its own cityness, if you like, has its own identity that is that is distinct both from the the, the countryside around it, but also from from other cities. Uh, and I would say certainly by the time we get to um, imperial China, by the time we get to the Han Dynasty, that that idea is is well understood. Um, although what that means changes um, across time. So Tang Dynasty Chang'an. Um, for example, was the was the imperial capital, and it, it drew everyone to it. Everybody who who and, and urban culture was um, what it meant to be urban was very much concentrated in Tang Dynasty Chang'an. But by the time we get to the Song Dynasty, because um, of the way in which elite culture had developed, we see multiple urban centers, and actually the capital was no longer necessarily seen um, as the, the place that set um, set the pace uh, for urban styles and urban tastes. Certainly by late imperial China, the capital in Beijing was the place where you see imperial urban culture, but it's Suzhou um, and some of the other cities um, in the lower Yangtze Delta that kind of set set the pace for 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 for, for, for kind of what it means to be cool, I guess. In you know, in in in, in cities, right? You know, if you wanted to be to be cool, you you went to Suzhou and and, and you hung out and and, and you, you you spent your money on 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 or, or, or if you had it on um on on certain goods and stuff, and and, and a lot of those came from Suzhou. So that so that so we and that that's. And that I think is 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 the important thing about looking at imperial Chinese cities in particular is that what it means to be to be urban changes over time, and and the 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 <clears throat> and the center of urban culture, the, the the cities that are seen as as kind of foremost and really driving um, uh, change also change over time. They're not just the imperial capitals; those capitals are always important. But there are other cities in imperial China which are which are, which are really key. And then, of course, as we get into the modern period, um, again, 
the centers of, 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 of urban change um, uh, uh, shift again um, uh, predominantly to, to, to Shanghai, certainly in the early part of the 20th century anyway. Mm, okay, that's fascinating. I want to ask a uh, question next about the morphology of cities and uh, a question that might uh, span um, the, uh, the pre-modern and, and the modern eras, and that's uh, specifically about the role of, of walls and gates and barriers and other features that are meant to control access and, and movement in cities. And of course, anyone who's been to a Chinese city today will, will certainly be familiar with the walled housing compounds that are a ubiquitous part of, of urban life. Um, but uh, these are, uh, you know, walls and barriers were also a big part of how cities were built in the past as well. So how should we, how should we think about the literal and symbolic role of, of walls and gates over the long array of, of Chinese history? Certainly, that's that's a really interesting question. So, um, the the urban form of, of cities was set um, really by the late the the, the 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 late Han Dynasty, when the city became kind of a physical manifestation of 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 of, of the imperial presence on, on Earth. There's a, a a relationship between the emperor's place as, as the son of heaven within the Chinese understanding of cosmology and then his place at the center of the city um, on, on earth. And that, that sets the scene for the way in which imperial urban form develops with its, 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 its palace city at the center and then the way in which the, the city walls change over time. So it had real symbolic, really, really important um, uh, for the idea of the empire um, and that is partly why many cities in China um, are walled in the way that, 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 that they have been. But of course, city walls are physical constructions, and so they also reflect the surrounding geography. So they follow kind of rivers or, the, or, or, or they follow the, the, the terrain. And then cities were built for other reasons. Sorry, city walls were built for other reasons. They were built um, for defensive reasons, um, uh, whether it's in um, north northwest China um, during the uh, early early Tang Dynasty, um, cities were 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 were, were built to, to 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 support um, the the trading routes um, that we know as the uh, Silk Road or um, along the coast during the Ming Dynasty, and we see city walls being built because of concerns about, about pirates. Um, and then within cities at certain times, city walls um, are used uh, to, um, to control um, uh, 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 the way in which society mixes together. And this is particularly, um, uh, we see this particularly during the, uh, uh, the, in, in Han Dynasty Chang'an and also in, in, in early Tang Dynasty Chang'an. And so there is a, a symbolic importance in that um, these, these, these walls of, of wards then um, uh, uh, create different spaces for different groups of people and divide different, different social strata within cities. Okay? Uh, and, and there is a legacy of that throughout imperial China, I think, um, in in so the, as as the as the, the the walls of the wards came down, often 
the streets that replace them might take on some of the some of the same names um, as these wards. And we see this in, in imperial cities in places like Suzhou. And then, of course, a lot of walls came down in the late 19th and, and into the 20th century. So a lot of them uh, came down during during the Second World War and, and, and more walls were, were destroyed during the early Maoist period. And so the gated compounds that we have today are, are not so much a reflection of this, this long history of, of walls within cities, but are actually a reflection of the way in which land was was parceled out within cities and given to different um to different work units given to 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 industrial concerns or universities or hospitals or whatever and the way in which that land was then privatized um in the in the reform period and that 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 influenced um how um urban developments uh were then were then built and how and how housing communities were built but in the 21st century, a lot of these housing communities also divide cities by, by strata. So there are, you know, multiple kind of gated compounds. You kind of walk around Chinese cities and you can see, you know, you can find um, one gated compounds, which, 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 which are obviously for, 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 for the well-off. Um, the quality of the housing is much better. Um, often they have they have they have better amenities. It's quite difficult um, to, to to get inside them. And then you have slightly more open compounds, um, which 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 are a, a kind of a Chinese version of, of of social housing. So even though it's quite hard to see a direct historical influence from kind of wards and and, and imperial walls into the modern day urban landscape, nevertheless, the importance of barriers in enforcing um, uh, uh, social differences and social hierarchies, uh, I think, I think remains, and that and that is, I think, a a a, a global um, phenomenon. Um, cities, part of the way in which cities have become organised is by by um, by social strata, and you have you have kind of good bits of cities which are perceived as being places where people want to live um, and bits of cities which are perceived as, as being places where people don't want to live and it's it's often those 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 bits of the cities which which are, are, are where are where people who are less well off um, tend to tend to congregate yeah that's that's really fascinating um, it's a, a lot of things I, I wasn't aware of so thank you for sharing that but Speaking of the way resources are distributed, um, I have a question about the environment as well. Uh, what role did the environment play in uh, in early urbanization in China, like in the pre-modern and imperial uh, eras? Yeah, so it's it's absolutely key. The environment is always really important. Cities cities always exist as part of their hinterlands, um, and where that hinterland where the ability of cities of the hinterland to support the city broke down that was that was quite an often quite an important reason or, or part of the reason that cities fell so we can see that with with northern way loyang um in the fifth and the early sixth centuries so it's a city of around half a million people supported by an empire of 20 million people and 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 and, and that kind of ran up against resource constraints and that was part of the reason that that, that it felt that there were other reasons too um, I don't really talk much about 
kind of the specific impact of kind of things like floods, for example, um, or, or, or typhoons. I think I think the impact of of, of uh, and I think that there's probably some fantastic imperial urban history. Uh, urban environmental history, which can be written about cities. There have been some wonderful books about about flooding and famine in China, but I think there's there's probably quite a lot more that could be written um, about cities. Uh, one thing that it is important to mention is, of course, uh, the Grand Canal uh, built during the Sui Dynasty to to link the, the 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 grain basket, the rice basket of, of of the Lower Yangtze Delta, China's kind of most most commercially prosperous and, and fertile area with with the, the the historical imperial capitals in, in the north, and it was the Grand Canal, which formed the backbone of imperial Chinese urban civilization, um, from the sixth century all the way up to to the nineteenth century, and, and and an awful lot has been written about about um, uh, uh, how. The, the Grand Canal um, uh, uh, silted up an awful lot, uh, uh, and the amount of money and the amount of the amount of resources that, that various dynasties put into ensuring that, that the Grand Canal um, uh, uh, flowed and, and that goods were able to to, to make their way um, up and down the Grand Canal. So without the Grand Canal, um, and it's linked to to the wider river systems of China, then. Um, Chinese urban civilization, I think, perhaps would have been very different um, because it was that that allowed the lower Yangtze Delta to be the place where commercial cities or more commercially oriented cities flourished to support these imperial capitals. And the vast majority of imperial capitals have been um, in in, in the north. Okay, well, um, with that, maybe we could... uh start talking about Chinese cities uh, themselves and especially the earliest ones that you, uh, that you talk about in your book. So wh- where, where were they? When were they built? And uh, what, what cities are you focusing on? So that's a really good question. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Brilliant. So yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so uh, the earliest Chinese cities were built um, along the Yellow River and and some of its uh, tributaries. Um, and uh, so the, they date from kind of around 5000 to 2000 BCE. There's the first kind of the Yangshao culture and the Longshan culture that, uh, that, that, uh, that, 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 that followed on from that. But cities were also built um, along the Yangtze River and near present-day Chengdu. And so the idea that... Chinese um, uh, culture began on, on the central plains and then spread out across the rest of China is, is has now been replaced by kind of multiple cultural sites appearing at roughly the same time and then and then mixing together at, at various points. So, but the first dynastic capital for which archaeological and textual evidence exists is is Anyang um, of the Shang Dynasty. Um, so that's around the kind of the second millennium BCE. Uh, and that's that's the, the 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 cradle, I guess, of imperial urban civilization, um, developed in in the central plains, and then obviously it was um, uh, Chang'an um, near near Xi'an was was the the capital um, of 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 the of the Han Dynasty, and that became the first imperial capital, the center of 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 of, of that dynasty. Mm. And what were some of the features of these early cities? Um... What did they look like, and uh, what role did, uh, for instance, um, 
markets and ritual sites or bureaucratic institutions play in in their development? Certainly. So um, I, all um, so I I argue that all cities were kind of multifunctional. So. Um, a, a, a lot of them had had a political center with with ritual sites, um, um, and they also uh, uh, had had markets. So by the time we get to um, the imperial period, um, particularly uh, Luoyang um, in, in 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 the latter half of of, of, of the Han Dynasty, we see the main um, uh, uh, ritual sites in in one place. Um, so this is the, the 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 shrine to the ancestors, um, the temples to the soil and grain, um, and it's Luoyang that very much um, uh, solidifies the this 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 kind of relationship between the emperor as 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 the son of heaven within the Chinese cosmology with the imperial capital as the center of the empire. But at the same time, and drawing on um, the 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 Kaogongji, which was was written um, uh, 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 during the Zhou Dynasty, and and set out the ideal for what um, for for what an imperial city should be, they also had um, had had markets. So the idea would that there would be two markets: an east market and uh, uh, and a west market. And we see that kind of repeated um, in imperial cities. And so we see from the very beginning that Chinese cities not only had a had a political and a ritual significance, but they also had um, a, a, a commercial function um, as well. Okay, great. And um, <clears throat> um, with time and the expansion of the of the imperial urban civilization, um, what did this mean for uh, cosmopolitanism of early China, like perhaps the Three Kingdoms period or the Sui and the Tang? Yeah, so that's that's <clears throat> so from the very beginning, Chinese cities were were globally connected. So we see Buddhism beginning to come into China during the late Han Dynasty. Um, through uh, through links um, to Central Asia, and so Northern Wei Luoyang, which was established at the end of of, of the fifth century, um, was was a city that was full of of of, of, of Buddhist temples. Um, and we have a fantastic um, a, a record which I which which I use in the book um, uh, to talk about, um, uh, 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 the, which which talks about the, the Buddhist temples and the monasteries um, in. In, in 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 the city, and at the same time, around the same time, Jiankang near present day Nanjing was was developing into the commercial center um, of, of, of 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 the lower Yangtze Delta, a city of between one and two million people, and also a center uh, for Buddhism. Um, and and then as we move into into the Tang Dynasty and the revival of those trading routes. Which which we which we we, we we call the Silk Road. What we see is is the goods of, of Persia and the goods of, 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 of Samarkand coming into into China, but also the people as well. So there were thousands of people, um, thousands of merchants who, who lived in, in 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 Tang Dynasty Chang'an, and they brought with them food. They brought with them clothing. It was. It was very popular for, for Chinese for people to wear Turkic style um, clothing, for example, um, and 
and so we see a real mixing of of of, of cultures um, by the time we get to the Tang Dynasty, and a real um, and China is very much part of the the, the Asian um, uh, 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 globe, if you like, very much connected to uh, to Central Asia. Via, via those trading routes and, and also to some extent connected um, to sea trade as well. And we see in, in, in Canton very early on, we see uh, 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 the influence of Islam as well. And some of the earliest mosques date from, from the very late Tang dynasty down on, on the southeast coast of China. So, so, from, so China was, Chinese cities were, were really cosmopolitan and globally connected Quite quite early on, but very much within the first millennium um, of of imperial China. Yeah, and also uh, during this time period as well. Uh, I mean, the the Tang and the Song. You also see a, a literate um, gentry culture starting to emerge at this time as well. Um, so, what were some of the things that they found noteworthy and and Im, Im, important to to record? So that that's absolutely correct. So the Tang so we could often call this that this is part of of, of the Tang Song transition, mm. um, and what we see during this period is 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 a huge development um, in of of commercialization in China, um, and there is a, a growth in the number of people um, who consider themselves gentry because they that more people uh, 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 try to take the exams um, to become um, imperial officials. And although a lot of them don't, don't end up passing the exams or they don't pass the, the highest exams to become imperial officials, it's that the, the, the act of taking the exam kind of makes them, or studying for the exam makes them part of the gentry. And so because there are so many people, that they're, they're, they're not all, all going to, to Kaifeng in the north to, uh, or, or Hangzhou during the Southern Song to become officials. A lot of them are staying at home in their cities and at the same time kind of new technologies um, uh, uh, which increase uh, 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 crop yields um, are, are pushing trade between cities and we get kind of towns developing um, uh, uh, as, as, as periodic uh, fairs, periodic, periodic markets develop in, into small towns. So we get, we get these places developing and, and they start to develop their own urban identity and we can see that through um, city god temples. So city god temples really um, uh, uh, start off in during the Song Dynasty, and, and they're a, a religious manifestation, uh, a religious expression of of urban identity. Um, you go and pray to your city god, and your city god is is is, is kind of the often somebody who is who is quite important to that to that did something really important um, to help to, to to help that city develop, and, and was then is then deified and and. and, and People in later generations pray to him, and so these gentry are kind of, you know, that that they, 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 they didn't go to, to the imperial capital to become an official, or that or they retired and they went back to their to their to to, to their small city, often along um, uh, 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 the Grand Canal, um, and so they start to write about their cities, and they start to write histories of their cities, the 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 the, the, the local histories that we know as 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 gazetteers, which become incredibly popular in 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 Late Ming um, and, and Qing China, but the earliest gazetteers date from the Song Dynasty. Um, they start to write about um, uh, not just the histories of the cities, but the local scenic sites. You know what you should start to see, and so urban distinct local urban identities start to develop as we get into as we get into the later Song Song Dynasty. 
um, and, and, uh, and that, I think, is the beginning of the flowering of, 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 imperial, of the imperial urban civilization. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, uh, it's really fascinating at this time to see what people were writing and how they thought about um, different kinds of urban identity and, and urban culture and uh, what, they, what they chose to record. But uh, what um, what were some of the other aspects of this uh, flowering of of uh, imperial urbanization, uh, especially as we get into like the early Qing, for example? Sure. So by the time we get to the early to the to the Qing dynasty to like late imperial China, so the end of the Ming, the beginning of the Qing dynasty, we have an urban civilization which is certainly as vibrant as anything that has existed anywhere else in in in, in the pre modern world. Um, <laughs> Excuse me, and it, it's very much based around uh, the, the 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 Lower Yangtze Delta, and the Lower Yangtze Delta develops into into the most prosperous of China of China's macro regions, and macro regions um, are, are are a way in which we think spatially about late imperial China, kind of distinct regional economies, and that that developed. Um, after the the, the the Song Dynasty and into the Ming and the Qing Dynasty, so we have kind of a, a geographical way of thinking about late imperial China. And there are issues with macro regions; they've been around for we've been thinking about them for a long time since um, since um, uh, G. William Skinner came up with them in in, in the nineteen sixties and seventies. But nevertheless, they're quite a good way of thinking about different parts of China. So the Lower Yangtze Delta remains. Kind of the, the 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 key commercial heart of the Chinese Empire, and then the imperial center is 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 in Beijing, um, and within the Lower Yangtze Delta, it's Suzhou, which is which very much is the commercial center. It's Suzhou that sets that sets the trend. So if you want if you want to buy the best furniture, if you want to buy um, the best uh, uh, silk, um, you would go to Suzhou. Um, because even if it wasn't made in Suzhou, it would certainly be traded in Suzhou. Okay, and it's in Suzhou where a lot of the gentry kind of end up, and they 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 they, they you know they, they they write their poetry. Um, they 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 start to write uh, our novels start to appear during this period, and it sets Suzhou sets the trend for elite um, urban culture, and so gentry in particular start writing not only histories of the cities, but also guidebooks. Um, and, and, and Faisi Yan has written this, this wonderful book about, about Ming'er and Nanjing, where she talks about the gentry who wrote guidebooks about the important places in the city. And these guidebooks would have made their way um, up the, 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 the Grand Canal, up the great cities of the Grand Canal, Suzhou, Yangzhou, and, and other gentry would have, would, have, would have read these guidebooks. Um, and so they wouldn't. They might have visited Nanjing. They might have visited Yangzhou. They might have visited Hangzhou, but they wouldn't necessarily have needed to. The, the guidebooks would would have told them um, uh, 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 about this 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 urban culture, which now extended beyond one city between cities. 
And at the same time as that, we have other types of, 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 of writings that were specifically about cities and about the way in which people move between cities. So if you're a merchant, you would have read um, specific books that, um, that described some of, some of the dangers um, of traveling or, 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 or where to get the best food on particular routes um, uh, 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 and things like that. So we see an urban culture which is not focused on the imperial city, which we see during in, during the Tang Dynasty and Tang Dynasty Chang'an, which is focused on, on on urban culture. And of course, imperial Beijing had its had its ha, had its temples. Um, it, it, that's where the emperor was was based, um, and and the, the 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 rituals that the imperial family undertook. Um, were really important to the life of 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 imperial Beijing, but Beijing was also um, a, 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 a city where an awful lot of people came to take uh, the, the the imperial exams. Um, so you have um, a, 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 an awful lot of, of of different of different people from from across China kind of establishing themselves in Beijing, and that that forms part um, of, of 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 Beijing's imperial distinctiveness. So. By the time we get to the late Ming and the Qing dynasty, it's not just that we have an imperial urban civilization, but we have different cities have their own identities. Different cities are known for different things. And I think that's really important. Okay. Yep, sorry, you said uh, uh, different cities have their own identity? Yes, that's correct. Absolutely, and that. So, so I would say that you know, if you wanted to to go, if if you go to Hangzhou, you'd go to Westlake, and you you know you would do that's what that's what you'd go and see. If you were in, in Suzhou, you'd go to the, the the gardens of Suzhou, and you would you would visit kind of important gardens, um, of of of, of um, which were of, of of a certain family, or or, 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 uh, or if you wanted to see, um, uh, um, uh. And, and then Beijing also had its own had its own identity as well. So, so different cities were known for certain things. I would say by by late imperial China, and and people wrote about them and reflected upon those cities. And that that, that I think is 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 really emblematic of an of a city's identity when people are writing about it and saying, you know, Beijing is known for for these kind of foods. And, uh, and during the autumn in Beijing or during the summer in Beijing, you go and, and, and you hang out in the hills overlooking the city because it's really hot in the city and you go and have a picnic over there. And these are the kind of things that people are writing about. Okay, sorry for the technical trouble there for a moment, but I was uh, moving into a question about printing and uh, publishing outside of uh, elite uh, circles. Is there any evidence for that in the formation of, uh, of urban culture in the in the Ming and the Qing era? Um, so certainly, um, quite a lot of people had had some level of of literacy, but I think it is fair to say that the vast majority of people in Chinese cities were not able to read kind of books or or, 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 or gazetteers or official publications. Um, they could certainly read enough characters um, for kind of day to day. Um, commerce, um, and, and th- what this means is that uh, uh, almost everything that we know about people who aren't the elites in China comes from what what, what the elites wrote about them, and this is this is a per- perennial problem in for, for historians, right? It's 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 the poorest people, the children, 
women um, who who leave the the the, the, the least um, direct impact in in terms of of, of the written word on, on history. So we always have to be very careful. But we do know um, quite a lot about 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 um, non-elite groups in in Chinese cities. You know, we know an awful lot about um, the occupational makeup of of many Chinese cities. So. In, in, in many in, in many imperial Chinese cities, uh, that different different occupations would 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 congregate in certain areas of the city. So you'd go to one part of the city to buy your meat. You'd go to another part of the city to buy kind of your furniture. Another part of the city to buy your clothing. Um, and often those those people um, had migrated to cities. They set up organizations known as as, as native place societies or, or same trade societies. Um, and we have we have pretty good pretty good evidence about various aspects of of, of their lives. We also know quite a lot about the religious life of cities. Um, and Susan Lacan's wonderful book on on Beijing, the temples in Beijing. Um, during uh, the Ming and the Qing dynasties is an excellent example of that. So we know um, that p- what people did when they, they celebrated the main religious festivals, the Buddhist festivals, the Taoist festivals, the main Chinese festivals, Chinese New Year, Mid-Autumn Festival, etc., etc. And we know a cert- to a certain extent what, what people did in terms of, in terms of entertainment um, some of the the, 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 the theatres that they went to, um, uh, some of the, the 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 things that they drank and, uh, and that they ate, and some of the sports that that they played. But but often this is through the lens, as I said, of of, of elites, and and we must always, uh, and that also informs discussions of of, of things like gender relations, um, and discussions about about childhood, for example. We always have to be extremely careful that we 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 are that we're aware of 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 who is writing um but i'm i'm sure i don't need to tell many of your listeners that that's (laughs) kind of fairly standard yeah definitely yeah so to move ahead uh, a little bit in our timeline by the time we get to the late Qing period uh, the next big development is the arrival of uh, western imperialism following the opium wars so what were some of the effects of this imperialism on the existing urban system, not just in the treaty port cities like Shanghai, but also perhaps uh, in cities further away from coastlines? Certainly. So the first thing that the arrival of treaty ports did was it, 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 it was the final nail in the coffin for the Grand Canal in terms of being the backbone of, 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 of urban civilization. So the Grand Canal often silted up. It, 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 when the Yellow River flooded or the Yellow River changed its 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 course, which it did at various points in Chinese history, that that was always a problem. But um, it was the, the silting up of 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 of, of the Grand Canal because the, the Qing Dynasty was was busy doing things like putting down the Taiping Rebellion um, in the mid nineteenth century, um, combined with uh, the, the 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 rise of steamships and the fact that it was cheaper for for rice to then be carried up the coast, which was the end of the Grand Canal. So a city like Yangzhou, for example, um, in, in, in northern Jiangsu, or, or, or just across just, just, just across the, 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 the north of the Yangtze River, hugely important in, in late imperial China, but by the, nine, the end of the 19th century had really fallen, you know, really declined um, uh, uh, an awful lot. So, so, so we do see 
um, a decline in, in some cities um, in northern Jiangsu and, and southern Shandong. Um, but quite a lot of cities benefited from, from treaty ports. So one of those, so Suzhou actually benefited hugely um, from, from, from its connections to, to Shanghai. And, and we often used to think that Suzhou, really important commercial city in, in, in the Ming and the Qing dynasty, actually declined in the end of the 19th century. But, but after it had recovered from the Taiping Rebellion, what happened was that a lot of merchants who who had made their money in Shanghai then set up branches of their business in, in in Suzhou, and it still supplied Shanghai. So the treaty ports oriented some of the Chinese economy towards the developing modern global economy, but but foreigners were, were not, you know. For foreigners who were kind of running a lot of that global trade were not going out to places like Suzhou or going out to cities around Tianjin and, uh, and interacting with people who were producing cotton or producing silk. That, that, that trade, the trade from the countryside to the small villages, to the towns, to the cities, which had been going on for, for decades or centuries, that trade continued to be run by, by Chinese people. Um, and, it, and the direction of that trade just, just went just just changed and that it was now out of places like Shanghai or, 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 or Tianjin. But I think it's certainly fair to say that by the turn of the, twen- the, the century, by the time we get, we get the beginnings of industrialization in the early 1900s, um, uh, the urban system is very much oriented towards, towards the coastal cities, Tianjin, Shanghai, and then down in the south, Hong Kong. Mm, yeah, another feature of the late Qing was uh, the emphasis uh, that you saw on reform and modernization efforts, um, not just by the Qing state, but among socially conscious groups and individuals. Uh, how did this emphasis on, on reform influence Ch- Chinese cities uh, in terms of uh, maybe uh, urban life or e- early efforts of, uh, uh, of modernization, for instance? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. So um there are several things that that are going on. So the, the Qing dynasty, the, the government um, puts its modernization efforts not so much into into into, into urban infrastructure, um, but into things like like the military. Um, that that changes right at the very end of the nineteenth century, and and they open up what are, what are known as, as shangbu, so so kind of commercial ports. And they're effectively tax tax-free zones or, 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 or places where businesses are encouraged to, to, to set themselves up, be they Chinese businesses or foreign businesses. And, and the most famous, the most developed of, of those is, is Jinan in, in Shandong, which, becomes, um, which later becomes a, a, a rail hub uh, that develops it in there. And there, there are about 30 or so of those that develop um, across, across the country. And I, I think quite a lot more work needs to be done on on, on the Shangdu, on the commercial ports, as, as state-sponsored attempts to develop Chinese cities. I think there's a really good PhD in, in that for somebody. Um, but we also see um, individuals um, and, and groups investing in urban infrastructure. So some of that money comes from, comes from guilds and the most famous um, uh, or the most well-known, I suppose, at least to, to readers in the West, is, is probably Hanko, um, uh, because of, of William Rowe's fantastic two books um, about Hanko in the 19th century and the fact that, that kind of uh, the, the guilds of the city take on a lot of the responsibilities for things like firefighting, um, uh, urban hygiene, urban defence, 
Um, we also have cities which where industrialists um, uh, develop, and I suppose one of the most famous of those is, is Nantong, um, just across, just north of, of, of the Yangtze River. And in the last decade or so of the 19th century, um, uh, 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 Jiang Jian, uh, the cotton magnet, uses some of the money that he's made from the cotton industry to build uh, a new road system in part of the city, to build a, a, a museum, to build a hospital um, a, a, and other urban amenities. And we see that in cities across China in the very late 19th and early 20th centuries. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. Actually, I was uh, wondering about the role of um, industrialization, especially uh, as we move into the Republican era. And specifically, I was wondering how the spread of, of industrialization combined with urban modernity and also massive popular protests, um, how these uh, these different forces might have somehow been constitutive of each other. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating question. So um, industrialization brings people to two cities, most notably to, to Shanghai. Around 50% of Chinese industry was concentrated in Shanghai, so the city really grew um, in terms of population. And so some protests we see is, 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 is just the result of kind of simple uh, uh, labor disputes. Uh, and we have a long history of of, of labor disputes in in Shanghai and and in other cities. Workers um, protesting for better working conditions, more pay, etc. But also, we see um, the, the 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 growth of of kind of popular nationalism, um, and it's the 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 the, the, the May Fourth movement um, is the most is often seen as the first mass public expression of, of nationalism, um, a, a reaction uh, to, uh, the, to the, the, the granting of, of German territories to Japan in, in, the, in the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War, when, when the Chinese felt that they were going to get the, 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 the German territories back. And that broke out in, in Beijing. It was a student protest, but it, it also then became um, very much a, a, a more general protest in, in Shanghai. Um, and of course, the Chinese communists then used nationalism in 1925 um, during the May 30th protests, which is the, the high point of the Chinese Communist Party um, in Shanghai in the 1920s, as a way to garner support um, among workers in the industries um, where they have uh, 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 the most the most leverage, and it's one of the things that they use as well as as well as 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 as, as agitating for better working conditions. So, yeah, protest is 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 is, is quite malleable during during this period. But all these forces come together, and we see similar protests and similar reasons for protests um, in in other cities um, uh, uh, around um, Asia. Um, as, as Tim Harper has, has written about Southeast Asia um, and in other cities around the world. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, but to switch, switch gears and maybe focus on something a bit more lighthearted, uh, I really enjoyed um, your descriptions of nightlife and entertainment uh, during this uh, time period as well, especially during the, uh, the 20s and 30s in, in Shanghai. And... I was wondering, uh, as much as we might associate this culture of consumption and, and leisure as something that was perhaps imported into Shanghai 
to what extent was Shanghai still a Chinese city with its own local identity? Yeah, that's that's a question that um, that has been bothering historians for a very long time. Um, <laughs> And I, and and it's a, it's the question that that people reflected on at the time, right? So there was in literature there was the high pie versus jing pie debate. You were either open minded and, and kind of out, out, outgoing and global, and that was you were based in in, in Shanghai, or or you were seen as so, somehow perhaps a bit more traditional, a bit more Chinese, and that that was kind of um, what 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 literati and what what writers in Beijing were how how they perhaps saw themselves. Um, uh, and I think it's worth saying that Shanghai, of course, is is a is a migrant city. I mean, yes, the city had existed for a very long time. It it it, it, it its roots go right back into imperial China. But it, the explosion of population came about because of industrial because of industrialization. Well, that was one of the reasons Taiping Rebellion was very important as well. But um, and it, and so Shanghai is is a mixture of cultures from around China. Um, and Shanghainese, the dialect, is 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 a product um, of in part of 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 that. But it's in Shanghai where you can eat food from across the country. You can listen to to storytelling from across the country, pray to, to gods um, um, from across the country. And so, for foreign culture is an aspect of that of that cosmopolitanism. And I think that's that's something that we see very much in in the nightlife. And it th- there is the. the the clubland that I that I talk about and the and the Mushing, um, who who I quote in, in the book wrote about you know he went to these clubs and that was a mixture of American jazz and um, with, with 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 kind of Chinese Chinese singers and and, uh, and Chinese players um, and, and then you would go if you wanted something that was a little more homegrown but a mixture of all sorts of of of, of cultures from around China you would go to to Dashujie to to Great Welt. Um, uh, and there were six floors of kind of entertainments, um, fortune telling, all sorts of different stories, different foods, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that was something that Chinese and foreigners wrote about. So, so I see Shanghai as a Chinese city, but it, it again it has its own distinct culture, and then Beijing has its own distinct culture, developing as as a tourist city during this period as the as the imperial the imperial parks and gardens start start to open up right at the very, very end of the Qing dynasty and then into the Republican period. And it reinvents itself, tries to reinvent itself because, of course, the capital has moved to Nanjing after 1927. So Beijing tries to reinvent itself as, as, as a tourist city and, and to, to some degrees of, of success. Uh, and then other, other cities are developing their own culture, Chengdu, which... Um, which Wang Di has talked about in the 1920s and 30s, you know, really uh, developing a, a tea house culture in in, in the southwest, um, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it's just just in the same way that cities in the imperial period had their own distinct cultures. We see that again in the in, in the 20th century, and some of those cities, most notably Shanghai, have a bit more foreign culture uh, 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 than others. Yeah, for sure. So also, I think we have to discuss the war years as well uh, as we move into this time period, uh, and especially since this is such an interest of yours as well. So how did uh, the Chinese urban system mobilize for the war effort, and uh, how did the devastation of war pave the way for urban designs and, and forms in the in the post-war era? Yeah, so that, that is a really interesting question. So... 
<clears throat> I'm not sure we can say, we can say that the Chinese urban system mobilized because much of it was was occupied by by the Japanese. Mm. We know, of course, that the the nationalists retreated to to Chongqing in the southwest, um, and Chongqing certainly certainly mobilized, um, and it became very much a city a city at war. And, and we have some wonderful descriptions of, of of air raid shelters, for example, and, and more bomb bombs were bought, were dropped on Chongqing over three or four years than were actually dropped on on, on London uh, uh, during the Blitz. And, and so, it, it's a, air raids were a, a feature of of life in in uh, in wartime Chongqing. Um, and Urban urban planners who who by this time were, were well versed in in international planning ideas. Um, a lot of them had had studied in in, in Europe or, or particularly in America, um, or they or they had read uh, translations um, of 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 or, 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 or of some of the great kind of, kind of kind of architects, people like Le Corbusier. They they were certainly thinking about. How to deal with with war and how to deal with reconstructing cities after the war. And one of the big things was how do you construct a city? Um, how do you design a city so that you can prepare for, for air raids? Um, or how do you design a city so that you can prepare for for, for an, uh, an atomic bomb after after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And I, I'm not sure that anybody has really answered the second question. But one of the things about about air raids is that. If you go to many Chinese cities today, and you go you go into into the the, the, the underground car parks of a, a big housing development or a big commercial development, you'll see air defense equipment in underground car parks. You might even see huge doors, which are kind of almost like bomb doors, big steel doors that you can shut so that you can get people down. And if if Chinese cities were to be come under aerial attack today, then there would be a modicum of protection for some people who could get there as well, and that's something that is still incorporated, I think, into some designs. So, so the war has left a lasting legacy, and one I think that that we that we still need to study an awful lot more. Yeah, and the uh, reconstruction era as well too. I think is uh, something that needs to be needs to be further researched, uh, right? Yes, I would certainly say that. I, I, <laughs> I. I, 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 I we don't have so so I'm 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 I've been doing some work on on Changsha which in Hunan and Changsha was I mean it was the, there were four battles it was burned by by the the nationalists in 1938 as they were re- retreating and it was occupied by the Japanese so something like eighty percent of buildings in Changsha were destroyed um, and and that ranks along with Dresden it ranks along with with London I mean you name any major or Stalingrad and we have multiple books on Dresden, multiple books on Stalingrad. Of course, we have books on places like Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Tokyo, after the huge bombing of Tokyo. But I don't know of any book in English on Changsha um, about how the city was reconstructed, about how the people in Changsha kind of dealt with the fact that their city was constantly fought over by the Japanese. There's stuff in Chinese. You can go and read some wonderful um, descriptions in Chinese. Um, uh, but I think these cities require, you know, need to be this needs to be looked at because that set the scene for what the communists then did. Um, they had to deal with with the legacy of of this wartime destruction um, after nineteen forty nine. Because of course, just as places like Dresden and London were not rebuilt within two or three years, it took it took 
20, 20 years in some cases for, for cities to be to be rebuilt, even as they continue to develop. That is the same for, for many of the Chinese cities that, that, that suffered so terribly during during World War Two. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more work uh, that need that can be done in, in English and um, especially from this era and afterward. Um, I can say also as someone who studied uh, urban planning during the Mao era, that there uh, there is really not a lot written about it, uh, at least so far in, in English. But uh, actually, I wanted to ask you about this as well, uh, because you mentioned that the conventional view of China during the Mao era was that it was under-urbanized. Um, and... To a certain extent, this was the view that uh, that uh, many in the West had of, of socialist countries in general. But uh, how do you respond to this assessment? Yeah, I, I have a, a, a problem with that because that, that kind of assumes, I think, that there is a, a normal path towards an urban society. Uh, and the idea about under-urbanization is that, you know, you have a certain amount, a certain level of industrialization, and therefore you should have a certain level of urbanization, a certain population living in cities. And it's not to say that, 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 that you know, Chinese cities had their own, their own way of developing and, and, and the way in which they controlled the urban population as it industrialized was part of that way um, of developing. So I'm not sure that un- calling that under-urbanization is the right, is, is the right term. Um, uh, the way in which industrial urbanization happened during the Maoist period had certain consequences, some of those consequences of which are still being felt today, most notably uh, uh, differences between urban and rural household registration, the, the, the huko, mm-hmm. um, which of course developed in, in and after the mid-1950s. But, but that's... If we call it under-urbanization, we're we're almost implicitly comparing it to to either over-urbanization or a normal path of urbanization. So I think it's just best to say that we have a period of of Chinese socialist or Chinese Maoist, Chinese socialist urbanization set within the broader framework of, of, of socialist development of cities, um, be that the USSR, be that Eastern Europe, and that that then has has consequences that we see during during the reform period, um, and and it's just and I, I I mean I understand why why it was used a lot of a lot of that early work was written by by urban planners not not historians um, it comes out of some of the work of the nineteen seventies and the early nineteen eighties um, uh, and and urban urban studies theorists urban planners were kind of using the models that they had and those models were derived from from the European and the American experience so from from that perspective, um, you know, I can understand how the term has 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 gained traction, but I think it's one of those terms that that perhaps we want to problematize. Yeah, for sure. I'm also really curious about the the imaginative place of the city under Mao, um, with with um, the extreme politicization of of uh, everyday life during this era. Did the uh, did the category of um, of the urban perhaps lose some of its relevance during this time? You know, for instance, uh, urban literature. Um, did the urban part um, suddenly become a bit a bit less relevant? Uh, that's that's a really interesting question. So obviously, the the hukou distinction is still very important, and I think mm. we need to 
you know, administratively speaking, actually, I, I think the urban is, is even more stark during the Maoist period. Um, but yeah, certainly discursively, a, a lot of the a, a lot of what was came out of the Chinese Communist Party is that that they wanted to wipe away the distinction between urban and rural, resolve the imbalances um, between these two spaces. Uh, but I think we know from from work like like Jeremy Brown, um, and Jim Brown's wonderful work on, on Tianjin. Um, uh, my colleague here in the UK, Mark Baker, who's 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 written about Zhengzhou, that actually these distinctions remain, and certainly in urban-rural inequality, certainly remained. So culturally speaking, yeah, I think I think we can say that there is still urban culture that, because urban culture comes from from the you, know, you don't get you don't get Danway, for example, in the countryside. So the Danway culture is is so important to in state-owned industries, and yes, there are state-owned industries in the countryside, um, and 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 it most notably perhaps on, on the third front. It's quite hard to see some of these massive factories being built in 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 the interior as being built in cities, but nevertheless, um, an awful lot of Danway. It, were, were developed in in cities and, and that that culture that that, that the way in which um, the the work units kind of govern daily life and the way in which it uh, um, they became spaces in which the the the, the communist campaigns were enacted um, uh, that 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 very much has has an urban spin so again I think it comes back to the one of the questions that that we discussed at the beginning, which is how does urban history relate to the history of other historical developments? So how does urban history relate to the history of the Cultural Revolution? How does urban history relate to the history of um, industrialization? It's picking out what is particular about the urban um, in these in these histories. Um, and, and, and that I think is still possible during 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 the Maoist period, uh, and I think we are we are slowly beginning to do that. Yeah, I think I think that there's definitely a lot more work to be done, and especially uh, you know to bring this more intersectional approach to uh, to the study of cities under Mao. Um, so I would love to talk uh, a, a lot longer about Mao, but I think we have to end from. <laughs> Just with uh, just with one final question on the reform era before we go too before we go too long. Um, so when we talk about Chinese cities today, um, a lot has changed in in what people are really referring to and how how they think of them, not just in China but also in the West, of course. And often it means uh, enormous skyscrapers and levels of development and, and modernity that you would find perhaps in a European city. But um, at the same time, Chinese cities are also host to uh, a range of you know, unusual and uh, perhaps we could say aberrant phenomenon as well. So I'm referring to things like ghost cities, the destruction of historic neighborhoods and the, and the deepening of spatial inequality, for instance. Uh, so, are these phenomena part of a of a single coherent uh, contemporary urban story in China? Uh, yeah, I, I think I think they are, and I think it's it's all connected to the political economy of of how land has gradually been privatized. And and Yu Tianxing tells this story 
um, I think really, really beautifully in in her book, and uh, and her book is is an absolute kind of must read for anybody who wants to understand urbanization in the reform period. <laughs> and so, basically, the Chinese state controls um, the, the 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 freehold, if you like, uh, uh, of all of all land in cities, and it's the leasehold or the usage rights which have become available for um, Chinese developers um, to to gain access to. Um, and for Chinese uh, governments to to, to sell. Um, And of course, with land, everybody gets to make money. So the developer gets to make money and the developer wants to sell the the commercial unit or the housing unit onto a company or, or to an individual who then wants to make money as the house prices go up. And so we just, because every, and, and, and the, the, the mayors of the cities or the heads of the urban districts, because they see the GDP of the areas that they control going up, they're more likely to get promoted within the Chinese Communist Party. So the profit motive really underlies urban development in China. And it's why we have, and at the same time, we have a huge pool of people who want to come to the city, try and get an urban hookah if they can, and then and then make money um, and, and improve improve their lives, at least at least up until you know very very, very recently perhaps where perhaps the dynamic is being changed a little bit. Certainly this is the story of much of the reform era. And so cities are just it's the profit motive that has driven Chinese urbanization. And that 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 drives um uh, 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 developers when they're when 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 they're they're looking at, at, at a historic neighbourhood and they set the, the value of that historic neighbourhood against um, the value that they can get um, of having several thirty storey um, uh, uh, housing blocks and and, and perhaps a, perhaps a, a, a mall um, uh, uh, that obviously that they can get far more money uh, uh, developing that than they can by maintaining the the, the historic. Um, uh, built environment uh, and, the, and the community that lives there, um, and then we see huge kind of uh, ghost cities, the so-called ghost cities, of the rush to develop something before people have have moved in, before we have the infrastructure there. Although a lot of those ghost cities are, are now becoming filled up um, uh, as people move move into these cities, um, and, and then of course, just in the last two or three months, I suppose we see with with property companies, developer companies like Evergrande being hugely indebted um, and being uh, and being unable to 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 really repay those loans, and the impact that we're now beginning to see um, on on other industries in China. And so, uh, as people make money, people need to to developers and uh, and others need to need to find the capital to fund all this all of this development. And, and so, perhaps we're beginning to see some of some of what happens kind of at the other end of this of this process and so in some ways it's a it's a really fascinating time to ask the question that you've asked because i don't think anywhere anyone really knows um uh where the story of indebted property developers is going to end in china um and and what the impact of that is going to be and and the and I certainly don't, 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 don't know, but but it's absolutely fascinating to see where we are and where the last decades, really, in the reform period, have, have brought us. Yeah, trying to make predictions, uh, I think, is uh, really <laughs> a game that's best not played, uh, especially in uh, in China when it comes to such kind of issues. 
but uh, also, yeah, sometimes the so-called aberrations can reveal the workings of the, the structure, uh, but just in a, in a different way than we might uh, not otherwise be aware of. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So, okay, uh, I think we'll have to stop here. You've been very gracious with your time. And I really apologize for uh, the technical issues that we've had. But uh, just before we go, uh, what's what's next for you? What are you working on? Um, what are you working on next? Well, as as I've said a couple of times, um, it, I'm looking at how Chinese cities were reconstructed after after the war. Um, I'm actually on my desk is actually a book about the the, the fallout of the Third Reich called Aftermath, which has just been published, um, which my my colleague here at Leicester put me onto. So, so as I look at how Chinese cities were were, were kind of reconstructed, I, I'm really interested in comparing China to to Germany to to Japan, uh, and I suppose. If if you were to ask me what, what what I wanted to do in five years' time, I, I'd really have liked to have published the version of John Dower's embracing defeat for China. That, mm. I, I'm not sure that I'm going to get. I'm not sure I'm going. I, 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 that's that's a huge kind of thing to say, and and that you know that's really some really big shoes to fill. That's an absolutely wonderful book, um, but it's a book that we don't have for China, um, and. and, and and I'd really like to to bring to light something of 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 the challenges that Chinese people faced um, at the end of of of, of the, of the anti Japanese War of Resistance, um, and how they overcame those those challenges in in the months and years afterwards, and how um, kind of rebuilding um, their lives and rebuilding their their, their, their cities. Um, was the basis for the for the construction of of, of, of Maoist society and, and the legacy that 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 has left. And it's a story that I think is a really important story to tell because Ch- Chinese people went through an, an awful lot of hardship to to to, to construct, you know, what is what, what what is the world's largest urban society, and that was a really important period in 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 that construction. So that's that's the project for the next few years, and and, and we'll see. Uh, how long it takes me to to write to write that book? Well, absolutely, I'm sure I'm sure it will be uh, challenging, but also very rewarding, and uh, we'll be looking forward to it whenever uh, whenever you uh, happen to finish. So, with that, uh, thank you again for joining me today. It was a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, yeah, we'll have to have you on the program again when when you're finished with that. Great, thank you very much indeed, Zachary. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you as well. You too. Thank you. <laughs>